Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who recognise them as our avian superiors, all set against the heartwarming and uplifting backdrop of an environmental Armageddon. This week, my special guest in the Armageddon arena is Samuel West, an actor and sometimes director who's played Hamlet and Richard II for the Royal Shakespeare Company, Geoffrey Skilling in Enron in the West End, and the voice of Pongo in Disney's 101 Dalmatians 2. Television work includes Slow Horses, The Crown, Small Axe, Mr. Selfridge, and his film work includes Darkest Hour, Suffragette, Van Helsing and Howard's End. He also plays Siegfried Farnan in the current TV adaptation of All Creatures Great and Small. In his spare time, he grows chilies and goes birdwatching. So Sam, welcome to Golden Grenades. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So before we get talking about your, your five favourite birds, I've got a few questions that I'd like to ask you. Mm-hmm. So you're very well known as an actor, but for those of us who follow you on Twitter, and particularly those of us of a feathered persuasion, you're also known for your passion for birds. You've done various bird-related projects in recent years. You've done a few stints on Tweet of the Day. You've narrated a film about nightingales. Yes. And now you're an ambassador for the RSPB. Yes. Um, so I guess there's no escaping it now. The truth is out that you are an official bird nerd. I certainly am. A proud one. Brilliant. Have you found yourself gripped by a report of something and dashed away from filming on a Twitch? Or do you slope off with your binoculars between takes? Well, I'm never without my binoculars. Um, one of the lovely things about All Creatures Great and Small is that we film in a particularly beautiful part of the world, just outside Harrogate. The studio there is based in a place called Summerbridge. And there are dippers and there are ravens. And I always get a call from our resident vet, Andy, when he hears the first curlews of the spring, because he knows that just after the curlews come back, we arrive. (laughs) We film there from March to early July, which is a wonderful time to be there. And also when I'm in June, it gives me a little bit of time to just welcome the children up at weekends and not do too much birding because June, as you know, gets a little bit quieter. But May there is very busy. There was a terrible dilemma at the very end of filming last year. No, this year, when the Turkestan shrike turned up at Bempton. And I've been to Bempton a couple of times to see the green warbler and also the albatross, which I had to go for twice. Of course. Although the green warbler was very disobliging, but I finally got it. And then the Turkestan shrike was that and I and I was at right at the end of the shoot and I packed up everything in the car and I needed to be home and I really missed the kids and I thought shall I go via Bempton Cliffs which was quite a big diversion and I couldn't so I went straight home sort of fuming quietly and then I went up that weekend for other reasons I had to go up to get other stuff I wouldn't do a big twitch like that for, for no reason but I caught it in fact very quickly it was an amazingly obliging bird And then it stayed for about another two months. So, in fact, uh, I could have gone several times. It was uh, was terrific. But I I do love Bempton. I have a very dear picture of our elder daughter seeing her first puffins through the scope there one June. I remember we give them little quizzes, you know, how many can you see or what colour are its legs? Keep it interesting for them. Now they're eight and five. They both have life lists. So if they can identify the colour of the legs or say something about the bird, I know they've seen it and it goes on it. And I mean, I must say, for a five-year-old, our younger daughter's got quite a good life list. <laughs> I didn't get that that many until I was about 48. That's actually, yeah, my my son, I think, had black stork and squawk heron by the time he was three. Oh, God, that's brilliant. He only remembers the chocolate buttons I bribed him with, though. Yeah, but those are those are good big birds. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice one. I've never been down to Bempton actually. I've, we're we're spoiled up here in Northumberland, so we've got a lot of, you know, Farn Islands, and there's a lot of cliffs around here. So I've never ventured down. I almost did go for the albatross this year, but I just knew I'm so unlucky when it comes to to going for rare birds that I knew it would have been on one of his sorties, and he'd he'd be gone yeah. for a couple of days and. We went to a talk at the Linnaean Society this year, and I, the, the lecturer who was promoting his book mentioned the albatross. And I said, well, of course, you, you know, I, I want to mention to everybody here and big up Bempton Cliffs because there's this very reliable black-browed albatross. And there was a sharp intake of breath from the speaker, and he told me afterwards he'd been five times. 
<laughs> and dipped every time. <laughs> had to, to apologise for calling it reliable. But I mean, I think it'll be there next year. It's going to be, I mean, and who knows how old it is. If it's only four years old, you, you know, your, your grandchildren might be able to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, that, I suspect there's plenty of time. An amazing story, definitely. Mm, mm. One of the things I was going to mention was, if it's not too embarrassing for you, but I am... Um, Give it a go. <laughs> some of your bird descriptions are, are from, particularly from Tweet of the Day. If people listening haven't heard Sam's Tweet of the Day stints, then then please do go and look them up because they're, they're a treat. But yeah, your bird descriptions, I think, should be incorporated into the Collins Field Guide. You, you know, you, <laughs> you describe the eider duck as, obviously, it's, it's black and white with this smudge of green on its neck. And you describe it as an exquisite pistachio speedboat, which I think is just brilliant. And it, does then, have a, it does have those sort of long lines of a, of a 1930s liner, doesn't it? Yeah. Although that's also the one where I also describe a group of eiders sounding like a a gaggle of gossiping Frankie Howards around the village pump. Absolutely. You know, the way they go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that is an excellent I have to say, I'm afraid that still makes me laugh, that noise. It shouldn't, because it's just a bird noise, but they do sound like they're gossiping. But it is, and it, it's completely comical. It, it's a, yeah, it's a perfect description. When you, when you think Frankie Howard, I talked about Ida's to somebody recently and they hadn't made that connection. And then I told them about your description and they were like, oh, why have I never noticed that before? It's, it's... Never, it never goes away now. <laughs> no, no, it'll be there forever. You've described a bullfinch as looking like a bouncer, but sounding like Wheezy from Toy Story. Yeah, I can never get bullfinches by song. They sort of go, <laughs> and yet, you know, as, they, as, as I think David Llewellyn pointed out, they look like Ray Winston. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, they're 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 amazing birds. We don't really get. I've never seen a London bullfinch. Have you not? It's the commonest bird that's not on my London list. Oh, wow. I mean, there are plenty. It's just we live fairly centrally, so yeah, very often. Yeah, we get it sometimes. A couple of pairs regularly in, in our fairly small garden, but I think we've got trees nearby, and, and we're quite lucky. I'll absolutely love them, but they do have a a bit of a heft about them, don't they? In that, I sometimes you get the the, the white mark on the bum. Yeah. As they flash into a, a, a tree, but I'm not good at IDing them because I don't see enough. Yeah, and they're very, they are very shy. And for a bird that was once kept in cages for their song, they're they're not the best vocally in the wild. You know, no, they're... I mean the song when it comes is actually rather pretty. I've slightly done them done them badly that, but it's because I normally see them in winter and they're just calling and it's so quiet and kind of yeah. hesitant. Yeah, yeah, and. There was another one, I, you, you mentioned the call of the turtle dove as a warm, hard purr, like a cat playing an ocarina. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, not just because of my new role as a, an RSPB ambassador, but I think that being able to get a, a nice image into a soundbite about a bird is quite important. Uh, partly because, I mean, I live with a writer and she's, she's I, I mean, she might well have written one or two of those. I think those are all mine, but she's very good at them as well. And I think just to be able to transfer your love for them in some metaphor or simile is quite useful. So I try and do that, partly because, you know, I like talking and I'm, I'm into words as well as birds. But but also because for the non-birders, it's nice to be able to catch on to something like the, the collared dove. Simon Barnes calls the call of the collared dove, which is incredibly monotonous, like a bored football fan. Like somebody going, United, United. <laughs> And actually, that for me is like the Ida, once heard, never forgotten. My children know that one and they're not forgetting it. Yeah, no, it's true. And it, it, whatever hooks people in, isn't it? It's making that connection and giving them something that's memorable. And I think it's probably why things like a little bit of bread and no cheese have stuck because... Yeah, it's, it's, that does actually sound like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like a nonsense rhyme as well that just sticks in your mind. And yeah. I remember once some, somebody telling me the young long-eared long owl sounds like a squeaky gate and you know, as soon as I heard a squeaky gate, you know, that was like, right, okay, I know what that's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your RSPB role there. You've got this ambassadorial role for the RSPB. So what does what does that involve? Yeah, I recently became one of the new RSPB ambassadors. I'm very pleased that they seem to have found their voice and are getting a little bit noisier about what they memorably called the attack on nature which became a very widely used hashtag, and quite rightly, it's, it's an unprecedented removal of uh, environmental protections, which actually is something that this country should be quite proud of, not just because we've had a Royal Society for the Protection of Birds for, for so long, 
As somebody pointed out the other day, we have an RSPB, but we only have a National Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Children, um, which is possibly not a great, great reflection on our character. But at least we do have an RSPB and they're very large. There's a million of us. And that's a lot of angry postcards to, you know, some quite conservative areas. So if a conservative government starts throwing out very useful and important protections, I want to be part of any group that magnifies that voice, and I want to lend my own to it. I can also do the, you know, being delighted by birds, whether it's on the level of a, a twitcher going to look for a, you know, a different patterning on a on a third primary, <laughs> or just feeding robins in the garden. I think the most important thing is to get people interested and out there. And there are lots of groups, the young people of colour, the economically disadvantaged, who you know, traditionally wouldn't have had a problem going going to see birds, but it's become unfashionable. And I think unless you can make going out there sexy to people in a way that they hadn't thought of before, whether it's as a part of mindfulness or meditation or just getting their minds off their own human problems, then you're you're trying to kick a wet football up a hill, really. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I'm very proud to be asked. And although on one level it is just sort of saying, aren't birds brilliant? And sharing pictures and talking about twitches I've been on and, and all that. I think what it comes down to also is there's a famous Tom Toro cartoon you may have seen of a man sitting by a campfire in a cave with three young children around it. And the caption is, yes, we destroyed the planet, but for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. And I actually have this cartoon in my loo, a print from him signed, because I think it might be the most important cartoon ever made. I mean, it's also extremely funny. But ultimately, if that's going to be our, our motto, <laughs> then we're screwed. So I think just getting people interested out there and wanting to protect the stuff that's on their patch, on their doorstep. Yeah. You know, Simon Barnes put it really well, how to be a bad bird watcher. Look out of the window, see a bird, enjoy it. Yeah. congratulations you are now a bad bird watcher yeah that's all yeah. it takes that you know so so i I don't, I don't want to get in the way with expensive kit or or big notes or you know expertise i, I just talk about stuff that that excites me and i can also get quite shouty so um so you know i'm, I'm good casting really yeah absolutely you're ideal ideal for the role Oh, thank you. <laughs> There's very other wonderful people like Deborah Meaden, who's highly respected both as a, a media personality and as a TV dragon and as a, a businesswoman. But she's also a new one of the new ambassadors and people like that, you know, coming from a different different background, different side, and possibly you wouldn't have thought quite so shouty, quite so radical. But when she lends her voice to the choir, you know, it really gets much louder. It's great. Yeah, fantastic. No, it is interesting seeing the different things that the RSPB are doing recently. You know, their, their SWIFT campaign, a bit of a eyebrow raiser, I think, you know. And they're, they're big on bird crime as yep. well, which has traditionally put them against the hunt and shoot and fishing fraternity. Yep. And they're not afraid to say, you know, this is illegal raptor persecution on lands that are kept for shooting. I wonder why. Yeah. Or, and they're not afraid to point to people who are getting funded by estates and say, listen, you seem to be against these crimes that are committed uh, in your constituency. Any particular reason why? These are good questions and they need to be asked. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I hope you'll continue enjoying the role and it's a, it's a big success and you engage with a lot more people and hopefully you avoid any of the, the stuff that Chris Packham gets outside his gates and things like that. Well, you know, you, you know you're doing it right when they come after you like that. Don't you? Absolutely, yeah. I think Chris says that sort of thing as well. You also contributed, and thank you so much for this, to a, a book that I worked on with the British Trust for Ornithology called Red 67, which depicts, at the time, it was the 67 birds on the on the red list, and we've just done a new book, and the, the list is up to 70 now. Um, some have dropped off, some new ones have gone on, including common birds like the, the swift that everybody loves. But you wrote about the missile thrush, and this is another example of your impeccable bird descriptions. I'm just going to read the, the first little bit here where you're comparing it to the, the song thrush. Here's to the overlooked elder brother, the geeky, gawky, beer-bellied beanpole who's less good in company, the shy child excused games hopping by itself in the middle of an empty playing field. I loved it. <laughs> you know, I, and when I asked you to do this, I, I was secretly hoping that you would come out with something like this you know be you, you know the, the the humorous description and then your your description of 
what they look like with a back of a colour that Farrow and Ball would call mouse waistcoat and charge you a lot for mouse waistcoat. <laughs> mouse waistcoat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't don't paint a large room in mouse waistcoat. You'll need a second mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 these are sort of flights of fancy, but, but I, they, when I see a bird that I don't know well, or I'm learning about, I used to be a train spotter and I still love railways, but there's a difference between seeing a, a locomotive that you haven't seen before and some sort of ticking it off and thinking, well, you shouldn't be here or you're, you're in the wrong region. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. But seeing a bird I haven't seen before or getting a second or third look or a good look at something I haven't had a good look at before makes me lean forward, uh, metaphorically and actually. And I, and I want to th find other words for it so that I kind of remember them. And, and, and the behaviour of something like a bird, which is, you know, it's not a mammal. It's really weird. So I think Simon Barnes points this out. We're very lucky that birds do two things that we also do. They do song and they do plumage, but they're not human. You know, the mammals that we know, we are mammals. You go out looking for foxes. You can see foxes. They're lovely. You know, we got them in our road. You can see the odd deer, but basically they do smell and we don't do smell. We're very lucky that birds do this stuff that makes us go, wow, that's beautiful. You know, beautiful for my ears, beautiful for my eyes. So when things like that, trying to find a word for the for that particular back colour or the way a, a missile thrush holds itself or the way that they're sometimes solitary, I mean, I'm really pleased you responded to it because that's how I think about them and and it really helps. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's true. You know, I think I think we all do it to a certain extent. You anthropomorphise because a lot of the a lot of the time it's otherworldly. They're doing their own thing completely. Mm -hmm. You know external to us but you know we do have a, a tendency i think as bird fans to sort of try and i don't know if it's like trying to be their equals because we all know they're superior no you're right we shouldn't anthropomorphize too much i mean there's a there's a wonderful um description in piranesi the new book well, a couple of years old now by Susanna Clarke, who wrote uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I was in. And it's a it's about somebody watching birds and 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 basically realizing that most of the sort of internal monologue of a bird is, is this food? I think this might be food. That's food. Is that food? Oh, there's, there's more, but might that be food? That's food. I think that's food. <laughs> that's all they do. It's like when in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Arthur learns to fly and discovers after a while that he can speak the language of birds. And it all turns out to be about aerodynamics and wind speed. And it's all really dull. <laughs> so, I mean, that might, may be true, of course. But, you know, we don't we don't need to know that. That's just for them. No, that's brilliant. In that piece about the, the missile thrush, you also mentioned the fact that the West Bromwich Albion football badge has a song thrush on it, famously. But in 1975, it was mistaken by the College of Arms for a missile thrush. And, you know, obviously this sort of lends itself to revealing another one of your passions, which is football, isn't it? Oh, and I know we've, we've chatted a little bit about on Twitter about birds that we've seen at football matches and things. Yeah. So tell me, tell me which sort of birds make your football grounds list. Well, the first time I ever saw a notable species in a football ground was at the Old White Hart Lane, watching a Premiership game between West Ham and Fulham, which was an extremely windy nil-nil draw on a windy November afternoon. And the only thing I remember about the game was a, a kestrel flying in and perching on one of the old iron girders. But um, I pointed it out to, to the person who'd taken me, uh, who was you know, interested in watching the football, and, um, and went afterwards going, well, oh, it was a really boring game. And I remember thinking, yeah, it was a boring game, but we saw a kestrel. <laughs> and um, there was a draw between Millwall and Wimbledon at their place at the Den a few years back, where Millwall fans may remember this, uh, where there was a seagull. I think it was a herring gull. Uh, I was quite a long way away and I didn't have bins. It certainly wasn't a, a black-headed. And it was sort of in the wing-back position, pun absolutely intended. Uh, and it just wouldn't move. I mean, it didn't really have to, I think, because Wimbledon didn't get very near getting behind that, the back four, <laughs> uh, which could quite easily have been a back three plus a seagull. Uh, <laughs> and, and, of course, the um, whenever it went anywhere near, all the uh, all the Millwall fans went, seagull, seagull. <laughs> Uh, that and that it just wouldn't fly away, and that again was a, 
fairly boring game that uh, that the that the seagull turned out to be the most interesting thing about quite recently i've noticed that there are some kestrels near wimbledon's beautiful new ground i'm an afc wimbledon fan and we go we're season ticket holders at the new plough lane and um during longers in in some games there i've noticed kestrels flying over there so i think there may be a nest there are certainly some quite high buildings around it some of the new build um flats so I wonder whether, like peregrines, they've they've nested on some of those because they're there more often than just passing through. I've started a small yard list for Plough Lane, but it's only got about eight species on it so far. It's possibly more than mine in, in St. James's Park, I've, although I do have woodcock and grey wagtail, which I think... Oh, the woodcock! A, a woodcock landed on the yeah, pitch. Yeah, I saw that. Were you there? I was there that much. That's amazing. I mean, I haven't seen a woodcock in any in any description for three years. It was so strange, and our back-flipping cult hero, Oberfemi Martins, had to actually go and pick it up and then took it to a steward who presumably took it out the back and released it in the park. I saw pictures of that. It was crazy. But yeah, you do sometimes need a little bit of interest to, to keep you going in these dull games. One final question before we, we must crack on to your five birds. I have to mention All Creatures Great and Small and just what a lovely show that is. It was a lockdown binge watch for, for me and the family. And it was one one of the rare things that we all agreed on to sit and watch together. So that was nice. And, I, and I'm sure that when the, the people developing the show were thinking about bringing it back, that's kind of what they were imagining might happen. I don't know, getting families together and watching a watching a program because everybody's just on their devices and disparate these days, aren't they? But uh, it was, I guess, one of the benefits of lockdown maybe. And yeah, just a, an absolutely lovely show. We were very lucky because we finished filming the first season in January 2019 and we weren't due to do the next one until the autumn of the next year, at which point we could do it, but masked. And so most of it passed us by and the, the lockdown that was you know, so considerable. It was just beginning. The first murmurs from China were just beginning when we when we stopped. And the timing couldn't really have been any better. And certainly when it came out, it was like catnip. It was where everybody wanted just something to sit in and, and remind them of, well, what they couldn't walk among uh, and, and the animal companions that perhaps they were missing and and the farms that they couldn't, you know, say hello to, and, and perhaps a, a slightly simpler life where people were connected and, and things weren't so complicated. And it, it really fitted the bill. Luckily, we kept, I think, all of that audience when we went to a second, a third, and next year, a fourth series. So it's a, it's been a wonderful job. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. I, I, I can't even imagine how insane I'd be if I hadn't been playing Siegfried Farnan for the last three years. <laughs> It's insane, though, he undoubtedly oh, is. He's, he's a fantastic, a complex character. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, it's nice playing somebody with depth. It's, also, it's nice playing somebody who's quite funny. Don't generally get to do funny. Yeah, yeah, you, there's definitely humour in all in all the characters, but Siegfried's got that sort of grumpy element of humour to him. No, it, it's been a, a massive success, and it, it is a lovely, warm, kind watch. Well, my daughter Naomi has a question, if that's all right, before we get onto your birds. Please, go ahead, Naomi. She wants to know, and honestly, we ask it probably, or, or somebody in the room will ask it, like, how do they get the animals to act? You know, every time we're watching it, it's like, dogs amazing. How are they doing that? Oh, well, I mean, if you're talking about Derek, who plays Tricky Woo, I mean, he's a star. Right. He is undoubtedly a star. And I've no doubt that in some sense he reads the scripts. <laughs> He has an amazing ability to sense the mood of a scene. And if it's comic, he'll be fast and funny. And if it's moving, he'll be slow and thoughtful. And if it's tragic, he'll teeter on the edge of death and then bring himself back just in time for the credits. <laughs> um, I mean, he is absolutely remarkable. A complete diva, uh, drinks like a fish. And, you know, you can't work, work with him after lunch. But <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I won't speak badly of him. Uh, but... I, I mean, I think patience is is the main ingredient. We didn't know how long it was going to take to film the first series, so they put in some contingency, which turned out to be unnecessary because the animal handlers are so talented and the training they give to the animals is so good. Some some animals are very, very difficult to train, cows in particular, quite hard. But they put in the hours, and in, it turned out on series one that the only days where we finished early were those in which the animals featured heavily. Um, so, of course, they cut the contingency for the next series because they thought they didn't need it. But on the whole, just good preparation, huge amounts of logistics for moving things around 
not just because of the pandemic, because of foot and mouth. Mm. There are different rules about who can go where. You can't leave a cow by itself. It has to have companions, otherwise it gets lonely. Make sure everything's well handled so that it's tame. And they all live together on a holding farm, which makes it easier, uh, which uh, which my children have had a lovely a lovely tour around. Oh, I bet. And also give the animal handlers the animals they don't mind. One of our animal handlers doesn't like rats. So try try not to book him on the day when Siegfried's rat is around <laughs> because you're not going to get it on set very easily. <laughs> there you are, Naomi. That's your answer. Fantastic. Right. Now, Sam, I'm afraid the podcast takes a bit of a sombre turn at this point. As we know, the UK and the world is facing a, an ecological and an environmental crisis, and it's looking increasingly likely that we won't escape it especially if current world leaders have got anything to do with it. But down to a rather nonsensical plot slash podcast format device, you get to save five species of bird from certain extinction. It's an impossible task, but I trust you're up for the challenge. So let's dive into it. Tell us about bird number one. one, one. I would absolutely have to save the dipper. I mean, the dipper might indeed save itself because it occurs to me that it's the only aquatic songbird in the world. So, you know, if terrible things are going on above the water, it can always escape under the water. It's sort of happiest in the water, although it flies and sings above it. It's the, it's the Thunderbird 4 of birds. <laughs> um, I love that it's not particularly uncommon, but that it's geographically very specific. You have to go to fast-flowing streams north and west of a line from the Humber to the Severn. And if you go too low or there's not a stream or you're in the wrong part of England you'll never see one and many people ne never have but when you're in the right place stick your head over a bridge and there's probably one there yeah so as well as being this aquatic songbird it has amazing evolutionary adaptations to help it do what it does it has solid bones unlike most birds who obviously have hollow ones because it helps them fly it has this white eyelid this extra eyelid that you can see blinking sometimes when it's on a, on a rock Oh, incidentally, the best way of spotting them is if you look for pointed rocks in a fast-flowing stream that have got white poo on them. Uh, that's probably where a dipper likes to be. And if you watch for long enough, they might come and perch on it. But they they famously do this, this swimming motion underwater. They hunt by turning over rocks on, on the bottom and eating invertebrates that go underneath. And um, in order to stop them bouncing away in a fast-flowing stream, they will walk against the current and use their wings to flap down and push their bum in the air so that the water going over their back pushes them down and allows them to walk in a kind of deep sea diver style along the bottom, along the gravel, which is just brilliant. You have to, you have to save them because they're so evolutionary in such a brilliant niche. Absolutely. They've been actually a, a favourite of a few people on that podcast, but you're right. The, the fact that they're the only aquatic songbird and they sing all year round, don't they? they yeah, they sing in the winter, we're like, rather like robins, I mean, which to, to whom they must be quite closely related, I suppose. They're also very smart. I love the white dickey and the brown waistcoat. I've seen the black-bellied species in Norfolk, oh, really? so you do occasionally get them east of that line I mentioned. But that was that was a rarity, that was a twitch. They look like really well-dressed butlers. Yeah, slightly, slightly rotund. Yeah, slightly, slightly fat butlers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. they're... they're, they're... Cracking little birds, yeah. They would definitely be in my top ten, I think. And I, I love the way they, you know, they just whiz upstream like a released wind-up toy. You know, that sort of yeah. It's a really direct flight, isn't it? Yeah. And they call they call very very high, so that they can be heard above the noise of the water, which is obviously another evolutionary thing that's taken, you know, millennia to to appear. But but it's very effective. You often hear them before you see them. That's right. Yeah, a bit like a kingfisher in that sense. But I think they also adapt the the pitch and the volume of the voice depending on how voluminous the stream is at any given time as well, I believe. That's interesting. Yeah. Cracking, cheerful, little jaunty, dumpy fellows. Yeah, and a, and a great first choice. Let's move on. Tell us about your second choice. Bird number two. two, two, two. This is a common bird which doesn't really have any particular reason for being there, except that I'm also, again, fascinated by its evolution. And since we're talking about saving birds, this is the great spotted woodpecker. It has a very distinctive call, what they call the kick call, which you can hear almost all year round, unlike the drumming, which is a, which is a spring thing. And it was one of the first I learned. I remember being with my girlfriend in Epping Forest, the first time I ever heard that kick call. 
And then we had one on our feeders. We have a small North London garden. And it was by far the biggest thing that had ever turned up on the feeders. We had a female in the spring of 2007, because we keep a yard list. I remember the days. <laughs> and it was just so beautiful, this pied thing with a, a, an amazing shape of, you know, the sort of cantilevered thing of, of bill and tail that allows it to push itself, mm. itself up the trunk. I saw an amazing video on YouTube the other day. In fact, I showed it to the children of how the muscles that make their tongue come out go right round inside their skull. Really? And they, and they unroll like one of those things that stores flex in the bottom of a, a hoover. Yeah. If you can imagine that going the other way when it gets pulled, gets pulled out, these muscles rotate really from the, in front of their foreheads and go back and push the tongue right out. And the tongue is barbed on some species and sticky and it also flecks at the end so it can it can go right into something and then the very end of it can turn so if it gets into the end of a hole but it still needs to go down it will find that ant or that grub plus they have sort of spongy skulls which means they don't get headaches because otherwise they would get them all the time we recently went birding in north carolina to see a thing called a red cockaded woodpecker which is very restricted and and endangered and Laura, my partner, called me saying, Sam, come on. I'd gone to the loo. Come quickly, quickly. There's one There's one in the car park. And then a ranger went past and said, don't worry, you'll see lots. And we saw nine that day. But they're very specific because they only go into old growth hardwood pines where the sap runs down the trunk in order to stop small crawly animals that might come up and disturb the nest. That's the first thing. Plus, you have to burn the understory uh, every couple of years because if it gets any higher than um, a few inches, the woodpeckers don't like it because they can't see what's waiting for them. <laughs> so they have an incredibly specific list of wants list. It's like a sort of, you know, very fussy band. Yeah. And, and their rider is quite long. <laughs> but if you do everything, if you get the right old growth, slow growing pines and burn it properly, they will turn up in some numbers. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. That is very specific, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. My favourite story about them was when I was watching the birds at the National Film Theatre, the Hitchcock thing. And, you know, there's a moment where Tippi Hedren and the boy get really um, worried and bored up the, the house so that the birds can't get in. And from behind me, somebody shouted, what about the woodpeckers? <laughs> <laughs> Collapse of entire cinema audience. <laughs> That's excellent. Because they are tenacious and they can get through stuff, as we know. Yes, yeah, some of the holes that the that the cockaded make, it takes them weeks. But they, I mean, there's just a sort of sense of, small sense of progress that they keep at. And, and without keep the headaches, they'll, they'll, they'll work at it. Yeah. And they're one of those birds, aren't they, that, you know, they seem to have escaped the magpies revulsion that people have when magpies turn up on the bird tables. Everybody still... Love seeing a great spotted woodpecker when they come in, but yes, it's true. It's a bit, it's a moment, isn't it? If I if I hear the kick call and I go, oh woodpecker, passers-by will go, oh where where? I want to see yeah. it. They're great birds, and and one that we've never talked about before. Oh good. And thinking of your descriptions of birds, I you know, and the fact that they do plunder nest boxes and they'll mm. they'll hear chicks in a in a tree and then they'll go through to get into them rather than coming in, you know, they'll, they'll go right there in there. But I have this image of Jack Nicholson with the axe and the shining. Oh God, yes, of course. That's exactly what a great spotted woodpecker would, would... With their beak, yeah, coming in. At this point, Anna, in proceedings, I'm gonna ask you my zero punches pulled question. Zero punches pulled. Which is my slightly ridiculous question that I suspect that nobody will have asked you before and is unlikely to ever ask you again. But your agent gets a call from Hollywood and Marvel wants you in the MCU. Good. Best of all, you can create your own bird themed superhero. Yeah. Which species would you base your character on? Well, it's got to be, I've got to be the Big Dipper. I've thought about this quite carefully. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm, I'm very much a fan of minimalist costumes. I mean, there's a t there's a touch of brown on the tummy. Obviously, not too big because my tummy gets bigger. But um, I mean, basically, he, he's just an incurable romantic, and uh, he goes around throwing himself into streams after a bad breakup. Um, that's all he does. He's a hopeless superhero, but he but he's uh, he is called the Big Dipper. So I'll go. I'll do that for the pun of it, really. 
But I think you've, you have thought that through, and I think that's a fantastic answer. I was thinking maybe, you know, woodpecker man, because he can drill through walls and he can headbutt enemies. Yes, that would be much more useful. Yes, no, but I'm, 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 I'm too indulgent for that. <laughs> it's, just, it's got to be an entirely personal, useless superpower. I actually do, do play a game as an occasional director. I play a game with um, new casts where they have to talk about their superpower. And you're not allowed to be modest about it. And I have I have a really good minor superpower. I can always get the correct postage for anything you want to put into the post because I'm a stamp collector and I always have leftover things and I can generally <laughs> estimate the, the weight of things. So that's that's a minor superpower. My partner's is that she's very good at wrapping presents. Mm-hmm. And people say things like, I, I make very good mixtapes. It's lovely because it brings everybody together, but you have to be truthful about it. It has to be a good thing. I think I know what mine is. What is yours? I've never been hit by a car, so I think crossing roads. Very useful. Yeah. Right, enough of this tomfoolery. Bird number three, Sam. Bird number three. Three, three. Bird number three is the long-tailed tit. And it's here for several reasons. But the biggest one is that it was the first bird I ever identified by sound. I was walking with my girlfriend in the Lee Valley. And I heard that funny little chatter from the other side of a big hedge. And I said to Mary, I think that's a long-tailed tit. And she went, oh. And it was. In fact, it was several. And nowadays, this is the sort of audio ID I would do 10 times a minute. But but at the time, it was inexplicable magic that I had managed to do this, that I, I had walked through gardens and woods and places where birds were chattering to themselves for years and not known the cast list. You know, there, there was no program. And now, by waking my ears up, I could begin to walk through and start birding with my ears and know who the people, you know, I was surrounded by were. And um, that delight has never left me. And it was the long-tailed tit that began it. it it's a particularly... A lovely bird to look at with small people. My younger daughter and I have a a regular gig where we make um, hot chocolate on a Sunday morning and go out and listen for songs or calls, more likely, uh, in in our small garden. And if we find one long-tailed tit, we know we're going to find another one. So that's very good for for a five-year-old because they they just want to do something simple. And so we know that one won't be by itself. So where's the other one? And there's always another, and there's usually a third or a fourth. Um, Jeff Sample, who was the man, Northumbrian man, who um, who I learnt my bird songs from when I uh, first started working at Sheffield Crucible and driving the M1 a couple of times a week sometimes. And I stuck the CD into, into the car and learnt his first two CDs by heart. And he has a, a thing that, where you should, a sort of birding exam, where you have to separate some high songs or some high calls. The others are Goldcrest and Tree Creeper, and the third is Longtail Tit. And nowadays, of course, they sound to me completely different, and I would never confuse them. I can even do Firecrest and Goldcrest now. Uh, but at the time, I was like, this is impossible. They're just all the same. They're just really, really high. When I first started birding about 15 years ago, I was walking across some heath, and a little bounding thing went, went over me. And the birder next to me looked up and said, Linnet, and I said, "What? I, I, how do you know? And he said, um, it just is. <laughs> <laughs> and now I can do that. And it's the same linnet, but I'm on a heath. It's bounding. It's probably make a tiny noise. It's got a very, very small silhouette that I kind of am used to. And I go, linnet. And people go, how? <laughs> it just is. So, you know, my, my eyes and my ears have got better, but particularly my ears. And it was the long-tailed tit that did that. I also love the way they they look like they're all sort of flocking on Chinese wallpaper. You know, the, the little toffee apple groups when they sit together. They're unbearably cute birds. They're also doing quite well. I mean, we should celebrate that, you know, they're one of the ones that are not on the red list. Absolutely. And I think they're one of our common birds that if you actually didn't have them and then saw one for the first time or one pitched up as a a rarity or something you know they look they look quite ridiculous you know yeah. compared to you know other other birds well, we must remind ourselves of that i went birding with oh i went for a walk with an american friend and she went what's that and i said um I, that's a blue tit she went oh it's so pretty and i went um 
Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of that. It's very pretty. But we <laughs> just go out of blue tip. We have to remind ourselves that the, the common stuff is often very lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Blue blue tits are ridiculous. There's not many birds that are that blue. But yeah, yeah. no, long-tailed tits are fantastic little fellas. I was lucky enough to have a nest in just outside our window, watching them build a nest and watching that little bum shuffle that they do. Just fantastic. So they line the nest, don't they? They, they line it with uh, moss and stuff. Moss and cobwebs and feathers as well. This was something I learned when I talked to Dominic Cousins on the podcast. I love his books. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Because it's the whole behaviour, which again, you learn the songs and you learn the ID and then start noticing the behaviour and what they're doing. And then that's a whole other element, isn't it? That's like listening to that Radiohead album that you can't get into and then the fourth time it clicks and the penny drops and it's like that's why they're doing that you know it's a great description but yeah no lots of feathers a thousand to two thousand little feathers and then what he pointed out to me which is takes them away from the cuteness is where do they get those feathers and they've actually picked them off corpses they must have done because where else are they going to get that many feathers corpse robbers yes and then the other dark element to them is that Obviously, they're famously in groups, family groups. The kids stay with the parents, the aunts and the uncles through the winter. They're all together and they all roost together for warmth. But the parents get in the middle, leave the kids on the outside. So if anybody dies, it's not them and they can continue the gene pool because they're more valuable than a, a first winter kid. Amazing. Darkness. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about your fourth choice, bird number four. Bird number four. Well, I'm not sure anybody would quarrel at letting this this bird into the ark. It's the nightingale, obviously for the song, but also because it's a crossover bird. You know, it's a bird that people want to have seen and want to have heard. We have a reliable site in the Lee Valley, north of London, just outside the M25 near Waltham Abbey, where we go every May, second weekend of May, probably take the kids. In fact, um, our first daughter was born at the very beginning of May, and I have a very dear recording of her um, breastfeeding next to me while nightingales are in, in the background. Obviously, she doesn't remember, but she's seen plenty of them since. Actually, she hasn't seen many. She's probably seen one, but she's heard lots. And of course, when you do see them, they're very underwhelming. They're kind of two-tone brown. I did do a tweet of the day about nightingales where... I pointed out the fact that we say, oh, she sang like a nightingale, as if that's beautiful. But if anybody actually did sing like a nightingale, you'd think they were completely bonkers. <laughs> because people have tried for years, not not just Messiaen, who famously wrote down um, Birdsong, but people have been trying for centuries to try and score the nightingale song. And it's driven a lot of people mad. Because apart from that jug, jug, jug uh, note that's, that's so distinctive, it's so high and fast and varied. But I really do feel I need to hear it at least once a year. And when we're walking up from the car park on the Lee Valley and we and we get to it, it's almost always in the same tree, just as dusk is falling. We get there about eight o'clock and we usually stay an hour. And we get hobbies as well, mm -hmm. and sometimes owls. We also take people who've never heard them singing, because I think you have to spread the birding love. I mean, obviously, there's their range is shrinking. We used to get them even in South Yorkshire, near, near where I was in, in Sheffield. And they don't stretch up that far anymore. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that I'd done voiceover for The Last Song of the Nightingale, a, a brilliant um, documentary about how their, their habitat is shrinking. Lots of new builds in Southeast need to be opposed because they're on nightingale breeding grounds and, and are being, and on the whole, people are listening. But it, it's not obviously not a song that one can hear as often as in the past. And I think that's a great shame because, you know, we have a different attitude towards music now. We can have every noise we, you know, ever made in, in something the size of a small paperback in the back of our pockets. But actual natural music of that quality, which used to be so much part of, like the song of the turtle dove, the song of our lives, you know, is really quite hard to find now. And I think that's a great shame. So I bring them along. Yeah. The song is a, a song of sadness and lament in a way, isn't it? You know, of grief and lost love and it's... Yes, only the males sing, of course. Yeah, so it, yeah it's a bit, bit like the Big Dipper. Yeah, just, it's, <laughs> it's, all about, it's all about bad breakups. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Right then, come on, tell us about your, your fifth and final choice. Bird number five. five, five. 
Oh, you're not going to like this one. I had to put in a major rarity, although weirdly a bird that I've seen on two occasions this year, the Blackburnian warbler, a new entry at number five. It's an American wood warbler. And I saw one on Briar on Scilly this October, along with about a thousand other people. And that sounds like nothing special, except that it was only the fourth time it had ever been seen in Britain. Except that on the other three occasions it had been seen in Britain, in 1961, 1988 and 2009, I think, it was seen by almost nobody. They stayed for a few hours in some cases. It's a North American warbler that breeds in the Northeast and winters in the Andes. So coming really from breeding grounds in North America and Canada down to the Andes in South America, passing through quite a lot of the Eastern United States along the way where I saw it in uh, North Carolina this August. Um, saw several, and they're very beautiful. They're, um, they're not really like our wood, wood warblers. They're much brighter. They've got a very distinctive yellow throat uh, and chest and head, in fact, with um, a, an eye stripe and brown, black and white wings. And this thing turned up on the 13th of October this year, found by um, a silly birder called John Judge, it was found on the 13th of October and we weren't going to be there until the 21st because we were taking the kids and it was half term. So I woke up every day thinking it'll have gone. And then, of course, as it didn't go, I woke up every day thinking it will have stayed, but it'll go the day before. <laughs> and then on the 21st, we arrived from the sleeper. We flew over because the Salonian had been cancelled because the weather was terrible. We took the first boat to Briar ran up from the quay and it was showing really easily it was just sitting there flitting from tree to tree absolutely breathtakingly beautiful showing down to about three meters oh i got both the kids onto it without bins it's a big bright beautiful yellow leaf warbler um I'm so and jealous. <laughs> uh, well i mean you should be it should be it's, it's, it's probably the best bird i've ever seen in britain and then it stayed for weeks afterwards. I mean, it stayed at least a month, I think. It was a fantastically important autumn for Scilly because of these persistent westerly winds that came across for the whole of the autumn and a succession of fast-moving transatlantic systems uh, and low pressure meant that they moved across quite quickly. So you're talking about a tiny proportion of birds that get blown off course in their migration in the first place and a tiny proportion that don't drown yeah and then a tiny proportion that see briar the westernmost inhabited of the, the silly isles and go bloody hell i'm tired that looks like a nice tree to land in going down and then gets found and then stays i mean it's a vanishingly tiny percentage of these american birds that that could ever be seen and this one was just a star i mean the the, the chances are minute but the joy it spread was was completely enormous and it, it also wasn't very tired i mean there was a there was a bird called the least bitten that came over uh in early october and, and went to shetland and was a first for britain and died the day it was found mm. um, several shetland birders saw it but um you know it's clearly a terrifyingly difficult journey but this little blackburnian warbler didn't seem to be bothered by it at all <sighs> I could just imagine your relief when it was still there and you were so like got it onto amazing. it. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And we I mean, what well, I would like to have been there every night in the Salonian Club on St. Mary's. They start a log and uh, just call out the birds. And to be there when John Judge said Blackburnian Warbler Briar <laughs> and everybody, you know, hugged oh, him and bought, yeah. bought him drinks. And that would just be it's just a wonderful reward for so many years of, of looking. Yeah. I also discovered that um, it's one of the very few birds named after a woman, Anna Blackburn. She was known as Mrs. Blackburn, even though she never married, but apparently um, it gave her more respect. <laughs> but uh, she was a botanist from Lancashire who had a museum in Fairchild in Lancashire. Uh, she wrote to Linnaeus. There are surviving letters with, with Linnaeus. And her brother, I think, uh, who was based in London, Ashton Blackburn, collected it and named it in her honour. I think she might have funded some of his expeditions. Although, of course, nowadays we're looking again at the naming of birds because they can they can often be problematic and, and certainly they do need to be questioned. 
Yeah. I think in this case, um, Mrs. Blackburn is one of the ones that you might throw out a bit later. <laughs> yeah. Some of the others. She can keep that for a while, I think. No, that's great. Yeah. I didn't know that, actually. And they are stunningly beautiful birds. I think if... I used to draw birds a lot when I was a kid. But if I was going to draw to bird, I would often like draw in black and white and then colour them in. It's almost like you've got this incredibly patterned black and white pied bird up until the head and neck, which is then just on fire. You know, it's mm. orange and gold. It's, mm, orange and gold, exactly. It's like you've just taken your felt pens to your black and white sketch or you've just coloured in your plimsolls or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just exactly. That. Great. Exactly that. Looking good. That's a brilliant description. <laughs> I'm so sorry you didn't see it. I, I won't say there'll be another one along in a minute. Yeah, there's, no there's unlikely to be one in Northumberland anytime soon as well. Right. Well, thanks, Sam. Look, those are your five birds that you would rescue from the imminent apocalypse. And if it wasn't hard enough to choose five, you now must choose one. Your favourite to be the Philip Pullman demon on your shoulder or by your side as you navigate the barren wasteland looking for signs of life? It's got to be the Dipper. I mean, as a demon, it would also be quite useful because it, it's fluent in another medium. So I'm, as, a, as a person who's not a very good swimmer and can be slightly frightened of fast-flowing streams, I think I would eventually learn through my connection with my, with, with my Dipper demon not to be. And wild swimming is something that certainly attracts me as an idea much less than it attracts me as a practice <laughs> but perhaps with a dipper demon i would eventually get round to it and i certainly think the evolutionary niche that it's happy in is is you know fecund and would would allow it to expand post-apocalypse which is you know very useful if we're going to screw it up we need to get back to something approaching happy biodiversity as soon as possible a fantastic perfect choice well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on today. Such a pleasure. Uh, it's been a, a great talking to you. Just very briefly before you go, what have you got planned for the new year? What, when will we next see you on the on our tellies? I've just been doing a, a really interesting, quite plinky piece uh, for a Dutch composer, which has my father on film and me on stage, based on a, a novel by Max Frisch, the Swiss novelist, called The Book of Water. We're touring that to Hong Kong in February. And one day I hope we'll get a British performance of that. After that, I go straight to Yorkshire for All Creatures. And we're there for the whole of the spring and until early July. That's series four. So I will certainly be taking my binoculars and um, coming back at the weekends, probably. Try not to twitch too much while I'm there. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't learn my lines properly. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is the now becoming annual delight of the All Creatures Great and Small Christmas episode which this year is going to be on the 23rd of December at nine on Channel 5. And I will be watching with my parents on the sofa. Oh. And my father will be quite cross that he's not in it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. We'll look forward to that as well. Well, Sam, thanks again. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Cheers. Well, that's all we've got time for, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hopefully, Golden Grenades will be back in the new year with some new episodes. But until then, wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bye for now.